Hello there, and welcome to episode number 382 of Smart Podcast Trashy Books. I'm Sarah Wendell from Smart Bitches Trashy Books, and today we are still looking back at our favorite books of the year for 2019 with the Smart Bitches team of reviewers from around the world. Shayna talks about the books she thought were perfection. Sneezy shares the books that she loved most this year, especially those that taught her how to human more. And Aria breaks down all of the elements that worked for her inside a book that's coming out at the end of the year. I do want to mention two potential trigger or content warnings. At 2719, there's mention of beating up an assaulter and of violence. And at about 5225, there's a discussion of a character with, wow, Islamophobia. Now, there's a spoken warning for that one, but in both cases, you want to skip ahead about 30 seconds. I really hope you enjoy these reading recap episodes because we have had so much fun connecting and talking about books. And obviously, I would love to hear from you, too. If you would like to get in touch and tell us what books you loved, you can email me at sbjpodcast at gmail.com, or you can leave a message at 201-371-3272. Now, there is a three-minute limit, so try to trim what you're saying, or you're going to have to keep calling back, which I know is super annoying. We have a special treat for the transcript and the podcast sponsorships. Today's transcript is sponsored by Once Upon a Duke, a free ebook from New York Times bestselling author Erica Ridley. Fans of Tessa Dare, Christy Caldwell, and Julia Quinn will love the laugh out loud Regency romps in the 12 Dukes of Christmas series. Once Upon a Duke is a second chances reunion romance featuring a spinster in a counting house, a grumpy duke, a snow covered castle, and a pygmy goat named Tiny Tim. What could go wrong? absolutely everything. When holiday humbug the Duke of Silkridge is summoned to a wintry mountaintop village of perennial yuletide, the last thing he'll do is rekindle the forbidden spark crackling between him and the irresistible spitfire he'd left behind. Or is she exactly what he needs? Find out why USA Today bestselling author Darcy Burke says, when I want to feel good, I devour Erica Ridley's swoon-worthy romps. Once Upon a Duke is yours for free wherever ebooks are sold. Find out more at ericaridley.com. Today's podcast is brought to you by The Viscount's Tempting Minx, a free ebook from New York Times bestselling author Erica Ridley. Yes, free. So you can find out why The Viscount's Tempting Minx is a fan favorite in the best selling Dukes of War series. Certain individuals might consider Lady Amelia Pembroke a managing sort of female, but truly, most people would be lost without her help. Why, the latest on thee is that rakish Viscount Sheffield is canceling the event of the year because he hasn't time for silly soirees. He doesn't need time. He needs her. The Viscount's Tempting Minx is yours for free wherever ebooks are sold and... Stay tuned after the episode where you will get an exclusive sneak peek of the audiobook. Find out more at ericaridley.com. It's getting very close to the holidays if you're listening to this before the holidays begin. And if you need a gift for yourself or multiple someones or just someone you really like, you can give them and possibly also yourself the gift of an Audible membership. Now is the best time to do it with a special offer of 53% off your first three months. Right now, for a limited time, you can get three months of Audible for just $6.95 a month. That is more than half off the regular price. You can choose one audiobook and two Audible originals absolutely free every month. Visit audible.com slash trashybooks or text trashybooks to 500-500. Yes, that is so cool. 
Now I went on a small shopping spree, which was included in my membership, so I didn't actually spend anything. And the Audible originals for December are really cool. The Half-Life of Marie Curie is terrific if you really like cranky, bantering ladies, which I really do. Plus, Kate Mulgrew is in it. This is a limited time offer. Three months of Audible for $6.95 a month. That's a great gift for you, for other people, for everyone you know. Visit audible.com slash trashybooks or text trashybooks to 500-500. That's A-U-D-I-B-L-E dot com slash trashybooks or text trashybooks to 500-500. Deep, effusive, holiday-spangled thanks to the Patreon community who keeps the show going each and every week. If you would like to join our Patreon community and support the show, monthly pledges start at $1, and every pledge is so deeply appreciated, and like I said, keeps the podcast going every single week. Have a look at patreon.com slash smartbitches to find out more. I know you know what music this is, but I'm going to tell you at the end of the episode. And I will also have a pretty terrible joke at the end of the episode as well, because I love ending with a bad joke. I love finding them. I like torturing my family with them. And then I like sharing them with you. That's the best part. But let's get on with our around the world tour of what the Smart Bitches review team thought were the best books they read in 2019. On with the podcast. I'm Shayna, and I'm in Sacramento, California today. Fabulous. Do you travel a lot? I do travel a lot for work, but I actually live in Sacramento. It's my home base. Very cool. All right. So tell me, what are your favorite books of 2019? Oh, my goodness. This is really hard. (laughs) It is really hard. I have no mercy here. This is really terrible. I know. I mean, you told me that I couldn't choose more than five. I thought, oh, this is going to take me a while. But actually, when I went back and looked, I think I'm such a nitpicky reader that even books that I loved, I kept thinking of something that I wanted to fix in them. Mm-hmm. So I actually only have a few that I feel like are truly perfect books from 2019. And, okay. And the first one is Mrs. Martin's Incomparable Adventure by Courtney Milan. Milan's one of my favorite writers, so that's a little bit of a bias. But it's basically about one of the side characters from her previous books who kind of was a scene stealer. She is this older woman. She's in her 70s, um, Beatrice Martin. And she's just hilarious. She really hates men. She's a widow. And um, she just kind of, I think in the previous book is when she first starts talking about how she's over men. And so she's going to start dating women. And um, it's unexpected in a historical, this is a a historical book. Um, And the whole, this whole book is about her falling in love with another woman who's in her late sixties, who um, also has dealt with a lot of the entitlement of men. And um, they're both really frustrated with the same man, which is Mrs. Martin's nephew. She refers to him as her terrible nephew. Like and. Uh, both are capitalized for the whole book. I don't even remember his name. I just remember he's the terrible nephew. And, uh, <laughs> you know, Violetta, the love interest, she was the manager of the terrible nephew's rooming house where he wasn't paying his rent and was just generally terrible, as you would expect. It was super entitled. And ultimately, she ends up getting fired because she's trying to hold him accountable. Um, and so she cooks up this whole scheme to convince his aunt, Mrs. Martin, to help her. And uh, they end up going on this kind of adventure full of hijinks, all trying to convince the terrible nephew that um, 
he's horrible. And and of course, in the end, they win. So it's this like, I don't know, it's like this feminist wish fulfillment with lesbian sex. And it's with two older heroines. I don't know. It just made me really happy. I've I've noticed a theme in a lot of the books that people are naming as their favorites. And there's often a thread of revenge. <laughs> yeah, this is pretty good revenge fantasy in a totally irreverent and whimsical and not super realistic way, but just they really torture the terrible nephew. Like his come down, so good. And it's so rare to see that actually happen. Yeah. If only it happened in our regular life as often as we would like, which is why it's so nice to read about. Well, I also loved Can't Escape Love by Alyssa Cole. It's um, it's a novella from her Reluctant Royals series. Well, I love that series. I don't know. I, I'm, I think you like it too. I feel like I've seen you talk about yes. that. Yeah. I love the fact that the characters in that book are unafraid to sort of call each other on their bullshit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I love how they learn to talk to each other. Yes. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's funny. What did you like about it? Well, I love that whole series, but I think actually this book might be my favorite in the series. It's the combination of the main character, Reggie. She's just this unrepentant geek culture folks. She, she runs this Girls with Glasses website which is a website that i really wish existed it, oh dude it's like you have no idea i mean it's like the mary sue but better it's like jezebel but like in the gawker years but better and then like maybe with romance but i mean i just really want this site to be real i think i wanted all of the pop culture in that whole book to be real <laughs> and and sadly it wasn't um so i just love her she's just so driven and like ambitious and i like you know i like competence porn but she's because she's into fandoms and because she has this kind of down to earth practical nature, like she just felt really relatable to me. So even though she's stressed out, which is how she meets, you know, Gus, because she um she's having trouble sleeping and only his like deep, sexy voice could help her sleep. <laughs> I loved that part. Um yeah, I mean, I just thought they were so cute together. And because his voice is their connection, they have these like great slumber parties and he cooks for her. And the disability rep is really good. Uh, she uses yes. a wheelchair, but it just feels really natural. I mean, you know, one of my pet peeves is when disability is used kind of in place of personality traits. And that just was not here at all. It just was woven into the story really well. I I thought it was great. Also, her wheelchair sounded really sexy. I loved that she had a bunch of wheelchairs. <laughs> um, yeah, it was it was great. I loved Reggie. I loved Gus too. You know, I love the way he you know takes care of her. And I just really wish that book was longer. Just even thinking about it made me want to reread it. I think it's also like the perfect novella. The pace fits. The story fits. There's there are stakes, but you know that it's going to be handled in the space that you have. Mm, mm-hmm. Yes. And you're not left left with that sort of post-novella feeling of, oh, I don't quite buy that they're together or, oh, I want more time to spend with them or, oh, this wasn't enough. It was a perfect amount. It's true. Although I still want more of them, but not for the story, just because I enjoyed them. Yeah. You just want to <laughs> hang out with them. I, I want them to be my best friends basically. That's such a nice compliment, I think. Yeah. Gus is a pretty good book boyfriend, actually. You have a good point there, especially the cooking part. 
The cooking part is key for me. I have a lot of fantasies about men cooking for me and then cleaning up after. Why shouldn't that be a good fantasy? That's an excellent fantasy. Yes. I wish more books had that. <laughs> yeah. It's a, it's an interesting way of caretaking. Yeah. And you know, it's sad because in reality, a lot of romances that have chef heroes, they're, I don't know, they can be kind of overbearing in the book. <laughs> it's a coded, uh, it's code for alpha. Yeah, definitely. And I'm really a beta hero kind of person. So yeah, me too. Yeah. And it's not even just beta heroes that I like. I really like when a hero is emotionally fluent and content with themselves. Uh, yes. <laughs> I don't want all the repair work to be done by the by the heroine or the other character teaching this, you know, emotionally uh, underdeveloped person how to have normal human feels. Like I want a person who's emotionally fluent figuring out how to be with someone else. That's plenty of conflict for me. Mm -hmm. Yep. I agree. It's one of my pet peeves as well. And it's one of the reasons that I think when I get frustrated with reading straight romances, it can be nice to just like take a little break and read one with two women. Because I think I'm just more tolerant, even when one of the women isn't the most emotionally fluent character. I think just because in the world, we just have different expectations for men and women. And I can handle it <laughs> in lesbic in a way that I just can't in straight romances. A lot of the time, the um, the conflict in lesbian romances is between two fully self-recognized people. Right. Mm -hmm. You don't have to wait for them to get all of their emotional crap together. They're, they already have most of their emotional crap together. Mm -hmm. Usually. Occasionally, though. Usually. Yeah, usually. <laughs> the ones that usually. I actually finish, yes. <laughs> yeah. What well, next? Well, my next one actually is a lesbian fiction book. It's The Lady's Guide to Celestial Mechanics. I am not surprised that you were mentioning this book. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, I loved it so much. I mean, my obsession with this book was so much. I mean, as I was reading it, I, you know, I started highlighting my favorite passages. And then like I was highlighting paragraphs and then pages. And then it was really getting to the point where I was going to just start highlighting the entire chapter, which is not actually helpful. <laughs> and I, I just went out at that point and I bought the book because I had, I had checked it out from the library. Yeah. And I hadn't even finished it yet. I was like, I'm going to want to own this. So I'm just going to go ahead and take care of that. I bought it on ebook. I actually am thinking that I want to buy a physical copy of the book as well because I just want to hold it. I really liked it that much. Oh, it's such a sign of a good book. When you pick it up a second time or a third time and, you know, whoops, you're gone. You're, you're sucked right back in and it's two hours later and you're like, oh, oops. That's exactly actually what happened with this one because I was thinking about, oh, wh which books do I love? And I went back and looked at Goodreads and then, you know, I picked it up again. I'm not supposed to be reading this book. I have other books, <laughs> books that are due back to the library very soon. And, you know, I read at least two chapters before I like, forced myself to put it back down and go back to the urgent library book reads. Yeah, it's a good one. I, I think, you know, I, well, first of all, I just love historical romances that have a lady scientists. Like that is catnip for me. Lady nerds. They make me happy. Even when it's like the way that they're engaged in science is not very realistic. I don't really care. I, I love it. And, um, you know, Lucy's an astronomer, the kind of main character. So I was going to probably enjoy the book just for that. Right. But 
you know, just the way that it talked about science, it was just really thoughtful and like insightful. And I think because the love interest, she's the widow of a scientist. And so she actually has some bitterness about science. And just, it makes sense. Yeah. I mean, it's, I agreed completely. This Uh, this has been earned. I get it. (laughs) You know, just, especially the Eurocentrism and, um, and the insularity around science and, you know, just, the male egos. I mean, that all felt super true to me. And it was nice to be able to both like revel in the science and acknowledge the limitations, particularly at that time. Although sadly, they're pretty much the same limitations now of, you know, Western science. And to be able to hold kind of both of those divergent truths in one book, I thought it was just really well done. And so, you know, for people who say, oh, you know, romances aren't like smart books, like this is a really smart book, just so thoughtful, like the healing and, and then, you know, even like with the swoony, like romance love story, like that was great, too. I mean, just everything was wonderful. And there's all these things around art, because like the, the love interest is an artist, and, but she does embroidery, and she doesn't really think of it as art, and she has to kind of learn to challenge her own internalized ideas around art. I, I just thought that was really interesting too. Yes, and the idea that there are there there are art forms for women that are not as valuable, and yet they are incredibly intricate and difficult and skilled. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And as someone who does embroidery, I loved that part. Yeah. Did it feel realistic? Because I, of course, don't know anything about embroidery. Oh, gosh, yes. One of the things that I really liked about the show, um, The Bletchley Circle, which I had a hard time watching because it's also about sexual violence. Mm-hmm. I love that. that. I love that show. Right. So you know how they're code breakers? And then in an early episode, you see the main character and she's knitting. Oh. Because, mm-hmm. because knitting is code. Mm-hmm. All of the embroidery patterns are code. So you're reading a code and you're deciphering it and then you're translating it to another medium or you're designing your own code to share with other people. So it's it's a puzzle and it's a code and it's a art or motif. Um, and one thing I do, and also you're stabbing something a lot, which is very satisfying. I have large <laughs> projects that I work on and I have small projects that I work on. And one of my small projects is to make a greeting card for someone's birthday. So I'll do maybe a two inch by two inch square of fabric, but I find a tiny pattern. Some of these patterns that are, you know, maybe four inches, five inches square, mm-hmm. they could take several hours because of the intricacy of the stitch work that you're doing and the, and the skills that you're learning. And so I loved the ways in which embroidery was was talked about in terms of how the understanding and value of it changed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I used to make costumes for a a local community theater many years ago. And um, and I still love to sew. And, you know, I remember one show I worked on, I had to make, I don't know, like maybe 20 corsets and bodices. And like, that's hard. And that's a lot of boning. It's a lot. No pun intended. (laughs) Yes. Um, And And, you know, it's just, it just really made me think about kind of women's work and the work, even to kind of maintain those garments in the past, uh, let alone to kind of build them. And that expertise just um, being seen as tied to women's adornment and not actually about uh, skill or artistry. Um, Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely something I love about this book. I am thinking about teaching myself to sew this year. (gasps) 
You should do it. You think I should do it? I have like a, I have a machine that I want picked out and I have like a whole list of projects and patterns that I want to try. Like I want to make pajama pants and I want to make a dog bed. I have all of these ideas and, uh, I'm really thinking, okay, you can do this. You can do this. I think I'm, I'm basically psyching myself up to do it. I think you should definitely do it. And those sound like good, easy projects. I mean, if you can embroider, which just to me feels like this amazing skill. <laughs> so it is easy in comparison. Although to be fair, I started off with costumes where they're meant to be seen far away. So I had a lot of duct taped hems and, you know, things super glued together. Yep. It's actually harder for me to finish things in a way that when people are only a few inches away, it, it looks like it's done well. <laughs> uh, so do- see a dog bed is perfect because Will a pet care if your seam is a little uneven? No, they will not. And the same with pajama pants. Plus, I can get all these fun fabrics to do it, you know, to, to do it with. And then work my yep. way up to other things like shirts or dresses or, you know, learning to hem my own clothing. Yeah. Yeah. Do you um do you take them out right now when you need to get something hemmed? No, I just go to a I'd go to a tailor and I say, I'm really short. Can you help? <laughs> Or like if I go to a department store, sometimes having the store credit card comes with an allotment on your credit card for uh, free tailoring. So I'll go for a sale and I have, I have really short legs. So I'll go in and buy like seven pairs of pants and the seamstress will come in and be like, oh, I remember you. Yeah. <laughs> like, hello, You're not going to need a very long tape measure. I have a very short inset. She's like, no worries. We got this. And then I come back and I have hemmed pants, but I would love to learn how to do that myself, you know? Well, I highly recommend it. It's, it's super easy. And I, I actually find it really relaxing. So, you know, I don't knit or crochet, but that's kind of what I do if I'm like watching TV or, you know, listening to music or a podcast, like I can just like hem at the same time because <laughs> it's, cool. it's repetitive and kind of meditative. And I actually prefer to do it by hand. Um, it's like not worth pulling out my sewing machine for when it's so much more pleasurable to do it by hand. That Okay. That's, that's definitely convincing me. Yeah. It's easy. You should do it. Okay. So what All is right. your next book? Okay. This is actually my last one. So even though you gave me up to five, <laughs> This is my last like, perfect book of 2019, and it's The Bride Test by Helen Wong. I loved that book, and um, and I will say that I was kind of skeptical going in, only because I liked the kiss quotient, but I didn't love it the way, like there was just this rapturous response to the book, <laughs> and I think because I'd read that first, maybe my expectations were too high. So while I definitely enjoyed it, I wasn't obsessed with it. And so I I think going into the bride test, I thought, uh, you know, well, we'll see. I don't know if it's going to be as good as people say, but it was better. Actually, I really loved that book. I just thought, you know, the themes around, I think, immigration and, and class were just really well done and thoughtful. And uh, the two characters were just they were adorable and I loved their families and I can't wait to, wait to read the next book and it was just it was really nice to just see a lot of nuance cultural nuance I think you know as well in the yeah. story I I also think that there's a theme in your book of characters that you want to hang out with oh yes I want them to be my best friend <laughs> I, guess. I mean and I will say just to be clear I already had three best friends and that's kind of a lot to manage and they can really um, they have strong feelings about like who gets to be the best friend in what area, you know, like the best friend on the West Coast versus best friend on the East Coast. So in reality, 
if all of these characters came out and became my best friend, it would be a lot for me to handle. Uh, it's kind of like a polyamorous best friend situation. So maybe it's safer that I just read about them. But yeah, I loved these characters. That is an excellent list. Are there any other books that you want to mention? Or are there any books you're excited about reading over the next few weeks? Oh, so many. I will say that I just finished reading um, White Whiskey Bargain which is set in Appalachia. It's a contemporary. And um, I was just talking with Claudia about it this morning because uh, I almost had her convinced to read it because she she mostly reads historicals, but because I liked it so much and she knows that I'm kind of a hard grader. So when I told her how much I liked it, she thought, oh, I might even read it. I don't know. We'll see. But it was great. It's about um, kind of moonshine runners in Kentucky. And it's just really sexy. There's a lot of like drinking bourbon and speakeasies. And um, there's a really, really good kind of lingus scene that happens in the rain on a car. I just have to say, like, it was amazing. <laughs> so I would. it's worth reading just for that. But no, it was great. It was a great book. So um, I don't know if it can make my kind of top four, but um, but I really loved it. I just finished it yesterday. So I think it helps when I'm thinking about books months later. I know I love them. We'll see if I'm still thinking about that book in a few months. Well, I mean, that car scene would probably, you know. I will be thinking about remain, that car scene. <laughs> remain memorable. Yeah. Yes. I am in Taiwan right now. The island's so small, it cannot be drawn to scale on the world map where you cannot see it. But we gave you bubble tea, so love us for that. I am a human chimera planner wannabe, diehard romantic and lover of food. And I will feed you, most likely soup. Well, I mean, I'm compiling this week's gift guide, and there's a whole lot in there about your very favorite rice cooker. So I hear this. And what's your name? <laughs> what's your name? Who are you? Oh, Sneezy. Uh, I go by Sneezy, but... I do have a real name that, well, I don't know if it matters or not, but I'll just keep it mum for now. That's fine. You don't have to give your real name. You can go by whatever name you want. Okay. So tell me, what books did you read this year that you want to tell everyone on the internet about? Okay. Um, really quickly, I just saw today I was only supposed to limit it to five, which was evil of you, Sarah. It was an immoral thing for you to do. Sorry. <laughs> okay, but um, I think I think my favorite book this year, well, that I decided today was, I'll probably change my mind tomorrow, but today I think it's probably The Kiss Quotient, A Choice of Crowns by Barb Hendy, The Seven Necessary Sins for Women and Girls by Mona El-Tahawi, and Man vs. Durian by Jackie Lau, and The Pasha of Cuisine by Sagan Irson. That is a very wide-reaching list. So why are those your top five? What did you like about – what's what's something you liked about each of them? Uh, Mona El-Tahawi, her book fucking – okay, I'm sorry. Can I swear? Oh, please do. Okay. Um, it's all I, good. Bring on the swearing. <laughs> okay. I'm very dirty-minded and very dirty-mouthed. I, I used to be a good girl, but then I broke one day, so this is what you get now. Uh, the seven necessary things, the book fucking opens with Mona El-Tahabi recounting of that time when she beat up her assaulter. And there's just, I think, I think it's just one of those things where anyone who's not like a cis straight white man would be like, yes, yes, fuck you, baby, I'm going to kill you. You're going to die. This is what's going to happen. Yes, fuck you. Don't 
fucking touch me. I'm just like, ah! Oh, it's kind of like your Mary Sue, but real life. Um, so, so like violent Mary Sue catharsis. Yes. Oh my God. And she's just such an amazing, well-articulated, amazing woman. That book is just, is, is kind of, at first when I, um, when I started listening to it by audiobook, which by the way, Mona narrates herself, mm-hmm. it almost sounded a little bit rambly. Like she's almost thinking out loud a little bit, but then you start to learn about all these feminists from other places in the world, all these other feminist movements and all these ways that people are fighting back against the system. And since it's a systemic problem we're dealing with, there's going to have to be change. And, um, um, and then Helen Huang and Jackie Lau, because they're just kind of the feel good books that I didn't know I needed in my life until they smacked me up the head and it's just, yes, they are. Yes. That that's, that's all there is. And then, Pasha of Cuisine, uh, I heard about from uh, Shannon Chakraborty on Twitter. Mm-hmm. And do not read this on an empty stomach. You will hate yourself so much. So much. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it's translated, I think, from Turkish. Um, and it, it's not necessarily a romance because it's not about... Um, it's not about necessarily the romantic journey that uh, the main character takes with his lady love, but more about his journey of understanding more about the world through food or maybe understanding food through the world, depending on how you, how you understand these things. And, um, and ultimately getting his happy ending with said lady love. And there's also this really badass villainous in there that's like, oh my God, you're probably going to fuck me over so bad if I've ever met you in person, but I'm just like, yeah, you're, you're very badass and I love you. Uh, and I think I talked a bit about the Dark Glass series, which A Choice of Crowns is in. Um, mm-hmm. And the entire series, I, what I found was because the way the author wrote, first of all, the world was kind of, it sounded like within two neighboring countries. It's not the kind of expansive world where the, there's a nice map drawn and you can really orient yourself. But there's just like, if you got into a fucked up time machine and it just plopped you in the middle of nowhere and go, well, there you go, you're here now. And you're like, wait, what's going on? You just have to figure out yourself. It, it kind of felt like that for me a little bit in terms of like orienting myself in the world throughout the series. And because the voice the author wrote for all the main characters across the series didn't vary for me. Like if you read, uh, for example, Man vs. Durham by Jack Lau, um, it pans back and forth between Peter's and Valerie's perspective. And even though the language is kept very colloquial throughout the book, you can distinctly tell this is Peter talking to me and this is Valerie talking to me. And there's not that in the Dark Glass series, which for me, instead of taking away from it, it kind of gave me this very surreal kind of living through multiple lifetimes except you don't really know if it's the same person reincarnated or not but anyway if I let myself it's a real head trip and I kind of like that a little bit because I don't have to be in the head trip I don't I I don't do that with mind fucks depending on the mind fuck this is like an optional mind fuck so I like that about it but also (laughs) optional you choose not to (laughs) um uh, all, the entire series is about um, a, a, a woman who gets to basically live three lifetimes up to a point. Sometimes they get to live through the whole thing. Sometimes they only get to a, a certain point. 
And in this book, the main character only got to a certain point, and her decisions um, had really big political and personal ramifications. And it was definitely framed as a, what are you going to do? Are you going to be happy, or are you going to care about the people around you? Are you going to do the right thing, quote unquote, and basically stand up for world peace, or are you going to like take care of yourself? And that's kind of a dilemma that um, I remember in in. I think it's pretty consistent throughout the series, but this one really stuck with me because mm-hmm. I found the main character to be like the most strong and the most optimistic. And I need optimism right now. <laughs> yes, I completely understand. Just about everyone I've spoken to mm-hmm. has talked about how they need books that are going to feel, make help them feel a bit restored when they're done. Yeah. Um there's definitely a place for stories like um, Brokeback Mountain, where the point is you see how bad it is. You see what people mm-hmm. have to deal with, and you have to own up to your own complicity in the, in the system. But then there are stories that kind of recharge you instead of wearing you down. Because it definitely is, is, um, it is emotional labor to put yourself into that headspace. And what about the, um, the kiss quotient? What did you like about that? Oh my God, what's there not to like about it? <laughs> okay, um, I need to be clear that although I've been kind of like heavy handed and being a bit, I guess, cerebral in my answer so far, I love sex in my books. That's very important to me, straight mm-hmm. up. <laughs> and I, I just, in, in both um, Man vs. Jury and, and The Kiss Quotient, is like sex is such a positive thing and no one's. Sque- like if there's a person who might have a bit of hang up to that person like hey it's okay like we'll figure this out you know it's, it goes back to the enthusiastic consent thing and and it's also uh it helped me learn more about the autism spectrum i read a really good article about understanding what the autumn uh, autistic spectrum is you know mm-hmm. like if you met one person with autism, you met one person with autism is the way that person phrased it. Because if you think of like the rainbow, if you met a purple person, you've met a purple person. But there's also red and yellow and blue people on, on, on the rainbow as well, right? So thinking about that was like, oh, okay, well, this helps me understand a lot more. And, and then reading it in a narrative kind of helped me understand that even more. And then the afterward where, where Helen Huang talks about how she figured out as an adult that she's on the spectrum and how she understood certain behaviors that um, were starting to affect her adversely, like her habits of, for example, tapping um, a specific number of teeth instead of her fingers because she noticed that um, people were getting annoyed with her if she taps her fingers, right? Mm -hmm. And then her teeth were starting to be affected by that, but she couldn't stop. It's like, oh, and then she found out about it. And then going back, and then knowing that, and going back to read the story again is it, just kind of I understand more humans now, and that's always a good thing. Yeah, I I know what you mean. So, are there any other books you want to mention? I know that you had a long list. <laughs> okay. Um, well, at first, I want to give a shout out to Muted by Miranda Munt. Uh, that's my favorite webtoon this year, uh, and it's just getting like all. It's like building up to more and more of these lesbian feels i'm just like oh my god you're so cute i can't take it just kiss already just you don't do this to me um but they're not there yet and and they have shit to store it out and she got me to a point where it's like yeah yeah i know you could die right now but can you just like 
revel in this lesbian moment just for me, please. Um, but and then and then um, I, I recently found this webtoon series called Halal Girls. Girls spelled with a U, and it's from mm-hmm. Australia, and it talks about like um, kind of by the experience of being like a, a, a Muslim woman and trying to figure out like her her love life and and trying to make it as a lawyer well you know at the currently at the moment trying to like deal with all the corporate bullshit of being a muslim woman in a law firm and still be like a lowly paralegal and and then um the the kind of stress she has from her family and then she has two sisters which are kind of at first made up to be only these cartoonish caricatures of what people think like millennials are or like a, a badass <laughs> um, smoking violent woman is and it's just and it's, all of it is just so great and I loved it so much um, and I really loved The Right Swipe uh, by Alicia Rai The Bride Test as well also by Hong Wong oh yes and then obviously the two books currently out by Chakaborty I am waiting for Empire of Gold and I, I just need a time machine to get the last book. <laughs> she has been killing us over Twitter for the past year. I'm not okay. And I'm not going to pretend to be okay. <laughs> what did you like about the the right swipe? The right swipe, uh, again, is like enthusiastic consent. It's, like, it's going to sound a bit fucked up and you're going to wonder like how I function as a human. But honestly, like these sort of romance novels kind of teach me how to human more in relationships than like actual relationships I've been with, uh, been in. And yeah, (laughs) because there's just so much that we internalize or at least I've internalized that I thought was normal and that I had to put up with. And then there's all these women being like, no, fuck you. I'm not going to do that. And it's like, oh yeah, I can just walk out. Um, And then the white swipe is like, Obviously, first of all, the main character is like a badass. She's out there making it. And I think um, there's a lot of women, including me, who are like, oh, what if someone finds out this about me and I can't explain myself really well? And like patriarchy like punishes me as it punished so many other women. It's, it's that thing where you know it's wrong and you know any sensible human would be like, fuck this shit. Mm-hmm. But then... You also know from looking at all the other women that this this is what we're dealing with, right? And it was just, it felt so good to see things fall in place for her. And it felt so good to see that, you know what, maybe there will be times in your life where hard work doesn't pay off. And you will question everything in your life if you have wasted years, if you've done everything wrong and put your all of your eggs in the wrong basket, but you can start all over and you do have it in yourself to just get everything you want, including the hotter guy. So, (laughs) (laughs) which is another sort of form of rage catharsis, right? Yeah. um, Wow. I'm, I'm kind of letting, letting out that I'm just a very angry person. I'm, That's I'm okay. Really You're not alone in that. <laughs> you are you. not alone. <laughs> <laughs> I really appreciate that. But I would also like to assure everyone I'm quite short, so I'm not that intimidating. I think right, we're, we are taught um, that rage is something that we're not supposed to have. It's not appropriate for us. Yeah. But it gets the job done. 
Are there any other books you want to mention? So we've been talking about Love Lettering by Kate Claiborne. And if anybody Mm -hmm. is interested, Ghost Signs by, yes, by Frank Mastropolo. And it talks about like um, all the old signages in New York City that you can see traces of and the ways they've existed and, and whatever. Um, I just like one one is like the fiction version of it that's a bit magical, and the other one is kind of like the traces of the magic that was a bit. And I just feel like reading those two books simultaneously is kind of really beautiful and magical, and I love it so much. So I'm Aria, and I'm currently in the northeastern U.S. I guess it's okay to say that I'm in Philadelphia. It's not some big secret. Yeah, and it's a pretty large metropolitan area. I don't think anyone's going to wander around Philadelphia and be going, Aria! Although it would be kind of amazing if they did. It would. It would be pretty great. Yeah, especially if they're going off the picture I have in the bio. Oh, that'll really narrow it down. So what are your books for 2019 that you want to tell everybody about? Uh, so, okay, this is hard, right? So I have 22 books, <laughs> but I'm not going to talk about 22 books. What happens, the problem is I read 250 books this year. And nice. When you re- yeah, when, we, when you read that many books, you tend to have a lot of favorites. And if you, you know, you could do yeah. your own podcast. Like, these are all of my favorite books for like yeah. three straight years. Definitely. And then, for first of all, narrowing it down to 22 was incredibly difficult. And then yep. you told me, oh, we can't talk about 22, which understandable. <laughs> <laughs> understandable. Right. So I, I picked five, and these aren't like the, the, the top five, because I don't think I could rank them into a top five. I picked five because they kind of give a snapshot <clears throat> of my overall reading year, which is I read mostly contemporary. That's three out of five. And then I I picked one historical and one paranormal. So it's like Mm -hmm. a good snapshot of the genres. Are you mostly a contemporary reader or is that a shift for you this year? Ah, interesting that you would ask that. (laughs) (laughs) No. Okay. This is really strange. So I, before 2019, I, I did not think that I liked contemporary and I don't know. I've always been drawn more to paranormal and historical. I guess my views are always like, oh, paranormal is just contemporary plus werewolves. Like it's everything that, that a contemporary has plus extra, like plus extra something else. Like I didn't really see the point of reading contemporary because I wasn't, because it's real life, right? Like it's, I can go outside. I never, I never saw the point of it. And now that's an incredibly stupid thing to think because I am one person I cannot possibly have the experience of billions of people. And there's really interesting, there's really interesting things to read about, about everyone else. So I've definitely had a shift to contemporary. Very cool. So what are your books? Yeah. So my very first book is Love Lettering by Kate Claiborne. Oh, such a good book. Did you finish it? I did. Oh, gosh. Okay. Okay, well, I have a question because I told someone about this and they were like, you can't put that on your list because it's out December 31st. And I read it back in October. <laughs> and I was like, okay, but I'm not going to put it in my 2020 list because I would have forgotten it by then. 
Nope. It's, it's hard when a book comes out on the last day of the year. Technically, it is a 2019 book because the pub date and the, and the uh, copyright date are 2019. So for the purposes of the Rita, it's a 2019 book. But publishers will call it a January book because it comes out on the last day of the year. You can call it whatever you want. So I am declaring it to be a 2019 book. Totally fine. What did you like about it? Uh, everything. Okay. Well, that is <laughs> that's all right. That no, that narrows it down. Um, I think Kensington totally missed out an opportunity to make this an illustrated version. I know that books with illustrations are really expensive, but every single time she talked about her her lettering, I was like, I would I love see it. to see I a picture see it. of it. Yeah, yeah. This was a book to the words felt like pictures to me. It really did. The way that words are formed is part of the story. Like they go hunt down typography and they look at different signs and they, and she talks about how the construction of letters is a different feeling. It's almost like this is her particular, the character's particular synesthesia. If anyone is listening and they're not familiar with this book, the heroine is a calligrapher. And she does custom layouts for people's planners and she does invitations and illustrations. And she's an incredibly talented artist. But the way text is formed in the book and the way the heroine interacts with words is another layer to her character that adds a dimension of her art. It's You're totally right. An illustrated version would be incredible. So the story kicks off because the hero comes in, into her shop. And she recognizes him as the fiancé of one of her clients from last year. And she feels terrible because in their wedding program, she had put a secret message that was a mistake because she thought that they were a bad couple and that they were going to break up based on the small interactions that she had seen in the meeting. And he She conf- wasn't wrong. <laughs> yeah, she was not wrong. And he, and he confronts her about it. Because he recognizes patterns, which is so interesting. And I won't tell you what the pattern was, but I was like, I would not have gotten that. (laughs) (laughs) If it had been my wedding program, I would not have gotten that. No, I wouldn't have either. The interesting thing about this book is that the relationship with Reed is one thing. And then I was equally invested in the relationship with her roommate, the other friend that she makes, which I don't want to give away. And even the owner of the shop that she works in. Like everything yes. was, everything felt equally important, which makes sense. Like when you're in a relationship, like that can't be like the 100% thing in your life. Like you have got to have other things. You're not in a relationship and you don't see any other people in the world. Like it, when you're in a relationship, there are other people that you interact with who affect your life. And okay, the, the thing with Reed is, so they have a mission, right? She has a client she needs to come up with the design. And I think she's, uh, what, what, what was it for like an agenda or something? Yeah. Yeah. So she has to come up with an, an, an agenda design. And her idea is to take signs from, from around the city. Yes. And give her inspiration because she has like artistic block right now. And because I'm not, I'm not certain why she takes Reed with her. I think it's because when, when she's with him, she's able to, see the signs more clearly or it's, it's, it's an adventure basically, right? Because he's planning to leave New York soon. Right. So he's also very low risk. Yes. And the thing with the read is kind of escape an, an escape for her because she's having such troubles with her roommate who is pulling away from her. 
for no reason at all. And they both know it. And she keeps on asking about it. And the roommate keeps on denying it and says, oh, everything is okay when everything is clearly not okay. And that's, it's so hard because she knows something is changing. She can't fix it because she can't identify what the problem is, but it still keeps changing anyway. I don't want to get into the spoilery bits, but the thing I really appreciated about this was, okay, the thing that makes me really angry in a book is that when you have a conflict with a friend or a family member and that person hurts you, and then at the end, everyone is forgiven because they are the friend or the, fa- or the family member. Like, we expect the MCs to grovel. But then it's when we have a family conflict, sometimes the friend or the family member doesn't always, like, they're almost forgiven instantly. And I never feel like they deserve to be forgiven. Yes. I, the- yeah, I don't know how else to describe it. Like, it's just, oh, you're my friend and I fucked up. So here you go. Like, here's a free pass for you. And often in a narrative, the friend relationships are not given that same space, like you said, for reconciliation and development. They're not treated to the same beats as the main protagonist's relationship. And that leads to this sort of feeling of, of being cheated or, or, or not having that full reconciliation that is so satisfying and makes those relationships equally important. And I get why it happens. You have limited page count. And you want to sure, focus yeah. it, and you want to focus it on the relationship. But then, if you're going to introduce a conflict with a friend or a family per- or or a family member, you have got to make it count because that yeah. person is equally important to the hero or the heroine. Yes, like, like so, I can't like we like we always talk about oh the grovel they didn't grovel enough and I don't like it. But the same thing applies to the friend. So I, without giving any spoilers, like I was just really satisfied with the entire arc of that relationship with the roommate. So what is your next book? Okay, so my next book actually has a similar theme. It's The Chai Factor by Farah Heron. I, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Okay, so this book, this book, I, the, the heroine and I resonate, like she resonated so much with me. She is so sarcastic. She is so guarded. She is so, I don't want to say mean because I don't want to call myself mean. <laughs> you're not mean no but you know what I'm talking about like she's so like she snaps like she's so defensive she snaps a lot like she's so protective of of her family like the instant she thinks that she's being attacked she like jumps to the the defensive and she's okay with that and like you know what that's that's an okay thing to be it's okay you don't always have to be quiet and nice I just loved Amira so much She's the type of character who owns her prickliness. That's the perfect word for it. And the premise is she's an engineering student and she's come home to finish her big project. And her grandmother has invited this barbershop quartet to rent out the room downstairs. There's this guy, obviously, but, um, and he's extremely annoying and he has a beard and he dresses like a lumberjack (laughs) and sparks fly. And that's like the main premise of the story. And it's very funny, but the things that I really felt about this book was not how funny it was. It was, oh, how do I talk about this without spoiling it? Okay, I just talked about forgiveness, right? And I think sometimes you can have uh, conflicts where there's well-deserved forgiveness. And then sometimes it's okay to write about a plot where you don't forgive someone. 
Like, I think it's healthy sometimes to talk about a person in your life who has become so toxic that you kind of, like, you have to let that person go. That's a weird thing to feel satisfied about. I, no. Like, do you know what I'm talking about? Like, like, Absolutely. There's this idea that love conquers all, and maybe it does, but not always. <laughs> I don't nope. know. No, I think what what these two picks have in common is that they represent the difficult and and often unpredictable reality of real human relationships. Sometimes love doesn't conquer all. Sometimes things do fall apart. Sometimes relationships end. They don't just begin and endure. They also change and end. And both of these picks sort of represent that, right? And okay, the, I really don't want to talk about spoilers, so I'll be extremely vague about it. The hero things happened. Yeah, I know. So. <laughs> I think this is going to be an uncomfortable book for many readers. And I think hmm. that is a good thing. Like I, so content warning for Islamophobia. I think it is, an, it is uncomfortable because the hero has a person in his life that does not think that Muslims are human. Like they are severely racist. And there comes a point when Amira realizes this. And she, like, attacks the hero. She's like, how can you be complicit? How can you be okay with this person? Like, how we cannot be in a relationship and you also had that relationship with that person. Like, she really forces him to think about the relationship in his life and how can you reconcile that with her. And, like, to someone else it might be, oh, why can't he just be with Amira? And then when she's away, why can't he go and be with the other person. Well, life doesn't work that way. Like Amira deserves better than that. It's Mm -hmm. her entire life, her entire family, her entire culture that's being under attack here. And I, so I want everyone to read this book because I think it is going to make you uncomfortable. And I think that is a compliment. I think maybe some people need to feel uncomfortable just a little bit, but it's also very funny. Let me like, let me like not forget that bit. It's very funny. So my next book is Kiss and Cry by Mina V. Escara. I loved this book. Yeah. And full disclosure, um, the author and I sometimes interact on social media. We're not like best friends or anything, but we'll tweet at each other. That being said, this book changed me. I don't know how else to describe it. it. So what did you like about it? I loved the subtlety of how it described the feeling of being part of a community, but not really part of a community. There's an incredibly nuanced theme of diaspora in the book of who belongs in a group and who doesn't belong in a group. And there's, and who's admitted and who is not admitted. And there's all of these very subtle signals as to where those boundaries are. And the characters are sort of negotiating them, especially the hero. I also loved how much the heroine was determined to take control of her life. That is one of my favorite themes where she's just like, I am now in charge and I am going to do things my way. And that's both empowering and really scary. Those were the two things I liked best. What about you? So the basic premise is the hero, the heroine is a retired ice skater and the hero is a player for the national hockey team in the Philippines. And he's about to retire. And they're kind of like, the ones who had a chance 10 years ago, but then they never really had that chance. And they're hooking up now in an attempt for closure. And he and the hero, Ram, he is a first 
generation immigrant to the USA, but he still plays hockey for the Philippines. He comes back every year just to play hockey, but he's an American. If that makes any sense. It's, it's weird. I know it's, he's, he's an American citizen, but he comes back to the Philippines all the time. And the thing about this book, I feel like I can't even talk about it objectively because I connected so much to the hero, so much so that it alarmed me how much I was connecting to the hero because I am also a first or is it, I guess I'm really the 1.5 generation, the, the kids who moved away to the U.S. when they were children. But it's not quite the first or the second generation. We're kind of the in-between kids. So yeah, yeah I don't, like, so let, let me give you an example, right? There's a moment where he goes back to a restaurant in the Philippines and he's eating this dish that he's been waiting for all year. And right before he eats it, he thinks to himself... I'm really scared that I won't like it because what if it's not as good as it rem- like what if it's not like what if the restaurant made a bad batch or what if it's in my memory what if I like hype this up so much and then it won't be good or maybe I'm the one who has changed and when you've yep. I think you don't have to be an, an immigrant to grasp this but like if you go if you go back to your hometown and you go back to like a restaurant that you really like and your entire childhood is there right and you eat it, and it's like not the same pizza that you were thinking about when you were away. It's just like it's normal pizza, but it's not like the memory that you've built it out to be. That's yep. what, like I feel that way all the time when I go back to Asia. Like, oh, sometimes the food is really, really good, and sometimes it's like, oh, well, I've had better. Why did I think this was so great? I, I don't know how else to describe it. Because it's not just oh, this is, it doesn't match my memory. It's a piece of very important memory nostalgia and identity and it doesn't fit you anymore and that's painful yeah and so another example is he has to fill up an entire suitcase of things he has to bring back to the u.s just because like there are certain goods you can't get in the u.s for his family and it was like the um the amount of detail the author paid to things like that i was just like oh this is me i do this everyone does this like they she really got that experience correct this book, I feel like I cannot be objective about it just because the hero resonated so much with me. And but I also think the romance is very good. Oh, it's but it's in really good. The, the hero really, really worked for me. Yeah. Okay, what's next is okay, so I'm done with my contemporary. So what's next is Thrown to the Wolves by Charlie Adhara. And this is book three of a, a paranormal romantic suspense series. And okay, so this actually isn't my favorite. PNR book of 2019 that might be like Nalini Singh or something but also she's been my favorite author for like 10 years so it wouldn't be that interesting to talk about her <laughs> I was like oh I guess I can't really talk about Nalini Singh again <laughs> it's fine <laughs> no but I really do love this book I like books with established couples this is definitely PNR they were already together in the beginning and but, I mean obviously they have conflicts it's MM if you like werewolves, you will like this. If you like mysteries, you will like this. And the thing that really stands out to me is how pack politics plays in this book. Because normally, I feel like in a lot of shapeshifter novels, there's this idea that you always have to be one with the pack. Like, no matter what, like, at the end, even if you are having uh, struggles fitting in or whatever... Like, you are happy with your pack. You, like, go back with your alpha or, or, I don't know, your mate or whatever. And in this book, 
the pack kind of sucks. <laughs> like, I don't know how else to, like, it's, um, so the werewolf is Park and the human is Cooper. And they're both federal agents who investigate mysteries. And up till this point, Cooper has not met Park's wolf family. And they go visit after a funeral. And his family is terrible. But they're also, like, really political and savvy. But they, like, they don't like him because he's human. And there's all this politics involved. And in the end, like, I was expecting a situation where the werewolf would say, oh, but you're my family and I want to be with you forever and ever and ever. That does not happen. He's like, oh, you're my family and I guess I do love you, but my pack is with someone else and that pack is with my boyfriend. I just liked that this was a werewolf book where the werewolf does not end up with the pack. He's very much his own person and he's chosen his own found family. I mean, I guess he does make a pack, but it's not the pack that he was born, born into. And it, and it reinforces the idea that, like you said earlier, family relationships don't get a free pass. It's not like he's cut them off or anything. No. Like, they're still family, right? But it's also, you can recognize, oh, I don't want to live with you forever. Because being in a werewolf pack is a big commitment. Yeah. And, it's, and it comes with responsibilities, much like other relationships. I think some family is easier to love from a distance. Yeah. And I think, yeah. So I also really appreciated that. Yes, absolutely true. And Zeb agrees. So this is my last pick and it's my historical. It's proper English by KJ Charles, who is a fairly well, oh, Zeb agrees with me. It's an excellent book. He absolutely agrees. He's entirely in favor of this pick. So I I loved a lot of historicals this year. And the reason I chose this one to talk about is because I just watched Knives Out. And it reminded me of why murder mysteries are awesome. Especially murder mysteries in houses, <laughs> in big houses, where there are lots of rooms and potential sus- suspects to interview. Have you seen the movie yet? I have not. Okay, you need to go see it right now. <laughs> okay, I will do that. No, but it's okay. So it's such okay. So the reason I like mysteries, it actually goes back to love to love lettering because I was so satisfied that I figured out the big reveal <laughs> when I read like, but like I didn't know it was a mystery, right? I was like, there were kind of clues. It's not a mystery, but I was engaged enough that I spotted foreshadowing, and I was like, this is going to happen. <laughs> and a murder and a murder mystery is the entire point of it is challenging the reader to think. What is going to happen? Like, I do you know how some readers get really angry when they say, I predicted, I, I predicted the, the twist. They get really mad that they see it coming. And I agree that it shouldn't be like totally obvious what the twist is. But if there's good foreshadowing, if the author like really lays the seeds in the ground, like it shouldn't be a total shock to you. The entire point is for the reader to go through the journey of investigating with the person. So this is an FF historical and it's just a lot of kissing and okay, someone dies. And I honestly, I I read this book back in May and I could not tell you who dies or why he dies. I just remember how cute the couple was (laughs) when they were kissing and investigating I guess someone died. I didn't really miss him that much. He was a bad person, so it's okay. It just made me really, really happy. I don't, I don't know what else to say. You know what? And that that can be the perfect reason to recommend a book, that it made you really happy. 
I just like murder mysteries and there was kissing involved and there were guests who were interviewed and that is literally all that I need to make myself happy. Okay. Are there any other books you want to mention real quick? Anything else you want to add? God, no. I'm looking at my at my list of 22 right now and that's <laughs> too overwhelming. I will say my overall favorite book of 2019 was Wolf Rank by Nalini Singh. To absolutely no one's shock. <laughs> no, not so, a surprise. I, yeah, but I didn't want to talk about that because, well, it's obvious. Yeah, I understand completely. And that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Thank you to Shayna, Sneezy, and Aria for connecting with me at various times in their schedules. And thank you for joining us for another recap of 2019 favorite books. Like I said in the beginning, I would love to hear what your favorite books were. You can email me at sbjpodcast at gmail.com or leave a message at 1-201-371-3272. Today's episode transcript is brought to you by Once Upon a Duke, a free ebook by New York Times bestselling author Erica Ridley. Fans of Tessa Dare, Christy Caldwell, and Julia Quinn will love the laugh-out-loud Regency romps in the 12 Dukes of Christmas series. Once Upon a Duke is a second chances reunion romance featuring a spinster in a counting house, a grumpy duke, a snow-covered castle, and a pygmy goat named Tiny Tim. What could go wrong? Absolutely everything! When holiday humbug the Duke of Silkridge is summoned to a wintry mountaintop village of perennial yuletide, the last thing he'll do is rekindle the forbidden spark crackling between him and the irresistible spitfire he'd left behind. Or is she exactly what he needs? Find out why USA Today bestselling author Darcy Burke says, When I want to feel good, I devour Erica Ridley's swoon-worthy romps. Once Upon a Duke is yours for free wherever ebooks are sold. Find out more at ericaridley.com. Today's podcast is sponsored by The Viscount's Tempting Minx, also a free ebook from New York Times bestselling author Erica Ridley. So, yes, free, which means you can find out why The Viscount's Tempting Minx is a fan favorite in the best-selling Dukes of War series. Certain individuals might consider Lady Amelia Pembroke a managing sort of female, but truly, most people would be lost without her help. Why the latest on thee is that rakish Viscount Sheffield is cancelling the event of the year because he hasn't time for silly soirees. He doesn't need time. He needs her. The Viscount's Tempting Minx is yours for free wherever ebooks are sold, and stay tuned after this outro, which, by the way, is totally a word, you will receive an exclusive sneak peek of the audiobook. Find out more at ericaridley.com. Thank you, as always, to our Patreon community who keeps the show going. If this episode and the other episodes have perhaps made you happy and you would like to join the Patreon, have a look at patreon.com slash smartbitches. Monthly pledges begin at $1 a month, and every pledge keeps our podcast going every week. Thank you again to our community for being so wonderful and for keeping us going. The music you're listening to is Adeste Fiddles from Deviations Project. This is Three Ships, the first song I heard from this album and still one of my favorites. You can find this whole album at Amazon or wherever you buy your funky, funky music. Of course, I will have links to all of the books we talked about in the show notes at smartbitchestrashybooks.com slash podcast. And I will have links to the YouTube and webtoons that we discussed as well. Do not worry. As always, I end with a terrible joke, and I really like this one. In fact, I mistakenly told it twice to my son, and he enjoyed it both times. Maybe he was humoring me. I don't know. 
But are you ready? <clears throat> Saddle up to the holiday table because this is one you can torture your family with. What are Mario's jeans made of? Give up. What are Mario's jeans made of? Denim, denim, denim. Denim, denim, denim. <laughs> it's so stupid. I love it so much. <laughs> that is from Gaius, not Cassius on Reddit. <laughs> so dumb. I love it. On behalf of Sneezy, Aria, and Shayna, we wish you a wonderful holiday and the very best of reading. And I hope everything where you are is delicious. We will be back next week as we continue to look back at our favorite books of 2019 and look ahead to 2020. And don't forget, after the outro, we have a sneak peek of the audiobook of the Viscount's Tempting Mix. Smart Podcast Trashy Books is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. You can find more outstanding podcasts to subscribe to at frolic.media slash podcasts. left for war. One stayed home. Chapter 1. December 12, 1815. London, England. Lady Amelia Pembroke glanced up from the well-worn almanac in her lap as her brother, the Duke of Ravenwood, strode into the yellow parlour with a distracted frown. The yellow parlour, despite being part and parcel of the winter ducal mansion, was strictly Amelia's domain. The bookcases were lined with rows of leather-bound journals, containing page after page, written in Amelia's small, precise hand. The cherrywood table nearest the bay windows contained the day's correspondence, stacked according to priority. The oversized basket beside her wing-back chair brimmed with a week's worth of periodicals, the ink worn grey from having been handled many times. Amelia marked her place with a crisp green ribbon and set the almanac aside. Her brother's presence could only mean he needed her wisdom on some matter. There was nothing she cherished more than the opportunity to put her mind to practical use. Although she knew a kiss was not required of her, being an unproductive use of one's time, she rose from her chair to buss her brother's cheek. Ravenwood had always been a very solemn, duty-oriented young man, but both his smiles and his presence had been far scarcer these past few months ever since his childhood friends finally came home from war. Some of them, that was. A black armband never failed to encircle Ravenwood's upper left arm. She fought the urge to hug him close. Were it not for having already inherited a dukedom, he would undoubtedly have followed his friends off to war. Less certain was whether he would have made it home. She walked to the fire to mask her shiver. "'Good morning, brother.' To what do I owe the honour of this visit? When he didn't join her before the fire, she turned to face him. Is anything amiss? 
Ravenwood ran a hand through his wavy chestnut hair, upsetting the careful work of his valet. Or not. Given the popularity of the frightened owl hairstyle today, Amelia couldn't fathom much effort being involved at all. He glanced at the clock upon the mantel. I hate to bother you with last-minute changes. Whatever the issue, have no fear. My plans are meticulous enough to withstand disruptions of any sort. Yes, well, even you could not have foreseen this disaster, and nothing will fix it. This afternoon's luncheon. Before he could complete this thought, a knock sounded upon the parlour door. With an apologetic smile, Amelia held up a brief finger to indicate the conversation would continue shortly. One moment, I've been awaiting a messenger. Enter! One of the lead footmen slipped into the room, his face concerned. I was unable to fetch Miss Azara, milady. She raised a brow. She was not at home? Oh, no, milady. Were that the case, I would surely have awaited her return. I'm afraid Miss Azara has contracted the mumps and will not be able to perform today after all. Ravenwood's mouth parted in surprise. Miss Azara of Drury Lane? You'd mentioned we would provide musical entertainment as part of today's luncheon, but I never dreamt you meant the second most celebrated opera singer in all of London. A good thing too, since it seems it shan't happen. Let this be a lesson, Amelia. No plan is too meticulous for unforeseen circumstances to derail. She inclined her head to her brother and turned to address the footman. Thank you, that will be all. He bowed, but before he could quit the parlour, a second footman arrived. This one, in grand contrast, was all smiles. Package delivered, my lady. Butler put her in the rose parlour with the pianoforte. Put her, Ravenwood echoed faintly. A Miss Catalini, the footman explained. She's to sing this afternoon. Her man is already practising scales with her. Miss Angelica Catalini? Ravenwood swung his head back toward Amelia. The first most celebrated opera singer in all of London? We promised musical entertainment, she reminded him with a smile. She nodded to the footman. Thank you, gentlemen, you did well. Ravenwood continued to stare at her. You knew Mrs. Zara would contract the mumps? Of course not. As I have tried to impress upon you, a smart woman plans for every exigency. He gestured at the footman's retreating backs. And if both songstresses should have arrived? Then they might have taken turns in sets, or performed a series of duets. She steepled her fingers. Now it will simply be an exclusive. Distant carriage wheels crunched upon the frozen gravel of the ducal drive. Ravenwood turned to her in horror. Early. I knew there was no time to change course, but Cousin Blaylock can usually be counted upon to arrive a half hour late to any gathering. Under the circumstances, I would have supposed their pace to be even slower than usual, what with... Don't make such a kick-up. Tis not our guests. But how can you... Two downstairs maids appeared at the still-open doorway, one with wringing hands, and the other shooting her quick, bolstering looks. Peggy, Martha, do come in. Both maids rushed forward, nearly tripping over each other as they curtsied. The one with the ashen face spoke first. I know it's washing day, Mum, and I'm much needed here, but my niece is dreadful sick. Dreadful sick, put in the second maid. Oh, it's fever you ever did see, and her a moppet of not more than two years. 
It's not my day off until next week, the first maid continued. But Peggy's is today and she's offered to switch with me. No problem at all, Mum. Not when I've been there myself. Got four cherubim of my own, you know. All been sick at one time or another. If you'll say it's all right, that is. Martha wrung her hands. She's just a baby, and as I can't afford a doctor, and not because of you, Mum, your wages are fairer than anyone. It's just that there's only my mamma in the house, and we had to patch up a few holes for the winter. Ravenwood cut a wide-eyed glance at Amelia, as if he'd never heard more convoluted storytelling in his life. And why would he? She imagined this was likely to be the first direct contact he'd had with the underservants since... ever. The running of a household was a woman's job, and the running of this particular household had been her exclusive domain since their mother died, when Amelia was fourteen. If it had run like clockwork all this time, it was due to nothing less than her meticulous planning. Of course, she said to the maids. Peggy, you may report to the laundry. Martha, a hack has just arrived for you and is waiting outside. In it you will find a medical doctor, as well as a small parcel of children's books you might read to your invalid as she convalesces. Hurry now. Return only when the fever has broken and not a moment sooner. Thank you, thank you, the maid gasped as she curtsied, then fairly flew down the hall. Ravenwood gaped at Amelia. You cannot expect me to believe that you summoned a hack, a surgeon, and a parcel of books on the off chance that someone's niece or nephew would take ill today. Don't be absurd. I had the news half an hour ago, and would have sent Martha on her way forthwith, had she not been racing through the manor in search of someone to switch laundry days with her. Unless you object to the expense? That startled a laugh out of him. Buy the girl a library of children's books, if that's your wish. The only thing that surprises me is that those two maids were patently unsurprised that you were not only aware of the problem, but had already put steps in place towards its solution. Why should they be surprised? As mistress of this household, it is my responsibility to keep it running smoothly. They expect nothing less. And frankly, I'm hurt that you would suppose otherwise. Hurt? You must know that I think you in possession of the finest mind in all of England. That doesn't mean I cannot marvel at it from time to time. Nor should you fly into a myth if one of these days something does not go according to plan. Such as the reason you stalked in here in high dudgeon this morning? I shall ignore the jibe about high dudgeon and inform you of the problem at once before another thirty servants march about like pawns upon your chessboard. Cousin Blaylock had declined our invitation because his wife is increasing, but I've just got a note saying that they'll be arriving after all, and are only a posting-house away. They'll be here within the hour. That's hardly a catastrophe. He's the most kind-hearted parson of my acquaintance, and his young wife is a dream. Did you not hear me say she's also increasing? Blaylock's note says she wishes to join us for luncheon, but her stomach cannot abide the sight or smell of fish. I'm guessing salmon is one of the very things the kitchens have spent the morning preparing. An exceedingly good guess. Salmon was her brother's favourite dish, and since he attended luncheons so infrequently, Amelia strove to always have it present when he did. Just a moment, please. Mrs. Brown, the housekeeper, hurried toward them from down the corridor. She dipped a curtsy when she reached the parlour. You rang, my lady? Ravenwood narrowed his eyes at Amelia. You rang? When did you ring? I've been standing right next to you. 
She rang a quarter past, I'm afraid. The housekeeper's cheeks flushed. There was a small to-do with Miss Catalini's tea, but it is all settled now. You did quite right by attending to our present guests first. Amelia thanked her warmly. Now then, please instruct the cook that we will substitute sirloin of beef instead of fish at luncheon today. The rest of the dishes will remain unchanged. I trust there will be no problem? None at all, my lady. The beef is very nearly done already, and I must say it all smells delightful. Your guests will be quite pleased. Thank you, Mrs. Brown. That is all. Ravenwood held up his hands. When did you... how? The moment I read Aunt Blaylock's letter. Amelia gestured at the neatly stacked piles of correspondence atop the cherrywood table as she settled into her wing-back chair. Do have a seat. He sank into the chair opposite as if he barely registered its presence. Is there anything you don't know? Amelia laughed. Reams of things. I haven't the least idea how many attend Parliament, for example, or what the new issues will be for 1816. That is your domain. But I do consider it my responsibility to know everything there is to know about anything that could be considered my domain. I believe I am quite adept at the management of people and events. His green eyes twinkled. You've certainly managed me since the day I was born. I was but three years old when you were born, she protested. I didn't start managing you for at least another year. Before her brother could reply, the under-butler strode into the parlour with a tray bearing two biscuits and a single glass of port. Ravenwood's shock gave way to humour. You're drinking spirits now. I would too if I had to play puppet-master all day in this household. In fact, it's quite bad of you not to have at least ordered a matching glass for me. I do intend to steal one of those biscuits. Cinnamon raisin is my favourite. The butler presented him with the tray. For you, my lord. Ravenwood cut his gaze to his sister. You can't be serious. She arched a brow. As it happens, the staff is on standing order to bring this specific refreshment at once, should you enter the yellow parlour while I am managing my household duties. The butler gave her a bow. It would have been much sooner, my lady, had we not also been in the midst of seeing to Miss Catalini. I do beg your pardon. As do I. I love these biscuits. Ravenwood took an appreciative bite. But why a glass of port? She widened her eyes. So that you feel welcome in my little cave. That is to say, why so few biscuits and only one glass? Why not a dozen biscuits and the port decanter? She smiled wickedly. So that you do not overstay your welcome. He laughed and held up the glass in salute. To the best sister a brother could have. She grinned back at him, thrumming with satisfaction. Despite his levity, no one took duty more seriously than the Duke of Ravenwood. He'd inherited the title while still at Eton, and like her, had spent the rest of his life devoted to exceeding expectations. In fact, the only duty she could think of that he hadn't thrown himself into wholeheartedly was his duty to beget an heir. Her throat dried as her guilt came back. To beget an heir, he would first require a wife. And the most logical reason for her duty-oriented brother not to have acquired a bride was because he believed his first loyalty lay with his sister. Not just because she was slightly older and could have been married off years ago, but because her entire life consisted of running this household. If he were to marry, 
that job necessarily must go to his duchess, leaving Amelia in the cold. Rubbish, of course, but just the sort of romantical reasoning her brother would come up with. There was only one way to disabuse him of such a loyal but wrong-headed notion. It was time to put off the inevitable. She loved sharing a home with her brother, but could not keep standing in the way of his future happiness. She had to get a husband. But where to begin? She stretched her slippered toes toward the fire as she considered the problem anew. Her thirtieth birthday was coming up fast, the day after Christmas, good heavens. A young lady in her twenties sounded ever so much more marriageable than a spinster in her thirties. Nothing for it. She'd simply have to bring a suitor up to scratch before Boxing Day. She reached for a large leather volume that always rested within easy reach of her correspondence, Debrett's Peerage, the perfect resource for thinning the chaff. A fortnight should be plenty of time to make a selection. Her brother glanced up from his second and final biscuit. What are you reading? Catalogue. As expected, his attention immediately returned to savouring the last biscuit. If that was the pinnacle of happiness in the man's life, then by God was he in want of a wife. She would turn her mind to him next, but not until she was no longer his perceived responsibility. She opened the peerage to the first page. The book did not include likenesses of the peers of the realm, but physical beauty was not something that interested her. Nor was the state of a man's coffers. She would bring her husband a sizable dowry, made all the more impressive due to her having removed it from the five percents at a young age, choosing her own stocks for the principal and investing the interest elsewhere. The already grand sum had tripled over the past decade alone. It was time to find someone to spend it on. She flipped through the pages. Earls, marquises, dukes. What was her pleasure? She had, of course, studied the matter thoroughly. A title was important, in so far as planning for the futures of any offspring. Young people who were called Lady This and Lord That quite simply had more advantages than those who were not, which meant barons and viscounts need not apply. Nor would it do to be bored. While the gold in her husband's pockets was immaterial, a large household was paramount. While her spouse was off doing lordly things, she would pit her wits towards restructuring their household as efficiently as possible. Once it fairly ran itself, she would set about providing heirs, who would doubtlessly offer a lifetime's worth of situations to be managed. Just think of all the strange new problems she'd be likely to face. Absolutely brilliant. That's not a catalogue. Her brother set aside his empty glass and plate to peer across the maplewood table. Why the devil are you reading de Brett's peerage? It most certainly is a catalogue, and the most expedient one at my disposal. I've decided to take a husband. His name must be within these pages. You can't husband hunt in a book. Perhaps you cannot. I intend to make a sensible match. How do you feel about the Duke of Lambley? Relations of his are diplomats somewhere in China. I can't think of anything more practical than a marital alliance with ties to the Silk Road. Lambley? Ravenwood exploded. I forbid you from even considering an unrepentant rake such as... What am I saying? Do not suck me into your stratagems, Machiavelli. I will not be involved. Machiavelli was a narrow-minded egoist, and I'll thank you not to compare us a second time. I should be shocked to discover self-centred among the words that best describe me. Oh, don't fly into one of your starts. I was just quizzing you. 
If you were at all self-centred, it wouldn't have taken you thirty years to come up with the idea of getting married. Twenty-nine, puppy! Nonetheless, while I recognise that I cannot fathom by what means you realise your various plans, I cannot think that one's life-love is to be found within the pages of a book. She snorted. You might be susceptible to poetry and long walks in the garden. Falling in love is for people who don't know how to plan. But if you insist I apply my efforts toward men I already know, I shall choose from among your friends. The Earl of Carlisle might do. I hear his estate is an absolute nightmare. You stay away from the Dukes of War, he thundered. I would not have any of them toss their handkerchief at my sister. Dukes of War, indeed. Trust Ravenwood to coin such a flowery phrase, and use it so disparagingly. I thought they were your closest friends. His eyes shuttered. They were. Ease your mind. I'm not a debutante whose head is turned by a pretty face and smart regimentals. I'm looking for someone less... elemental. She held up the peerage. I obviously won't know which of these fine gentlemen is to be my future husband for at least another week, but you cannot deny it is an excellent resource for trimming the names down to a manageable list. And then what? Gad about knocking on doors? Of course not. First impressions are key, which means an elaborate gown, an intricate hairstyle and dim ballroom lighting. Ravenwood leaned back in his chair. Are you saying you'll contrive to get all these paragons of eligible bachelorhood under one roof? That unparalleled efficiency has already been done for me. In twelve days, everyone in this book will be at the Sheffield's 75th annual Christmas Eve ball. She set down the peerage in order to flip through the tallest stack of correspondence. She frowned when she could not easily find what she sought. The invitation must be in here somewhere. Viscount Sheffield always sends them out by the 1st of December, and today is the 12th. Well, you're half right. Today is the 12th, but there's not going to be a 75th annual Christmas Eve ball this year. What do you mean, this year? This is the only year he can have a 75th annual ball. Next year would be the 76th, which won't count a button if he skips years willy-nilly in between. Ravenwood shook his head. Not willy-nilly. Cancelling wasn't his choice. Oh, stuff! He's only the Viscount and the sole master of his affairs. Does the holiday conflict with his pleasuring this year? I've heard he's quite a rattle for hunting parties or gentleman Jackson's. Don't tell me he'd rather spend the evening at some gambling hell than continue tradition. I can't rightly say where he'd rather be, but the man loves parties. A stroke of lightning took the matter right out of his hands. You can claim his family's holiday party as a London institution all you wish, but the orchestra stage is nothing more than ashes, and the whole of the interior stinks of smoke. When did this occur? she demanded. I didn't hear a word. A fortnight ago. He kept it out of the papers. Between the weather and the holidays, renovation won't be completed until spring. She sniffed. I'm sure I could have had it ready by Christmas, had I been consulted when the incident first occurred. Her brother laughed. You mean if you had any say whatsoever in Viscount Sheffield's business? In any case, it's too late now. You said it yourself. Even you couldn't restore the venue in time for Christmas. She arched a brow. Who said the soiree needs to take place in the same old ballroom? All we need is a new venue. We? Ravenwood reared back, horrified. 
Not you, dear brother. Viscount Sheffield and I. Does the poor flat even know who you are? Ravenwood burst out. Her smile turned calculating. He's about to. It's impossible, her brother gestured wildly. It's not just a question of venue. It's finding a great number of staff to work the holiday, an exorbitant amount of food, an army of chefs to prepare it, an orchestra for dancing, any number of other entertainments, all at the last minute, then sending out handwritten invitations to everyone in that cursed book of yours, informing them of the new details and praying they haven't made alternate plans. He shook his head. I'm sorry, Amelia. It would take more than a miracle. There's only twelve days left. She pushed to her feet. Then there's no time to lose.